to our church. Let me move that. All right, so maybe, maybe your experience with the church or with Christianity has been one of uh, where questions are off the table, where uh, good Christians don't actually ask questions, and, and if maybe you have asked them uh, in a church setting or with, with other Christian friends, you are maybe told you can't, or uh, maybe you have an answer, or receive an answer just like, uh, you should just have more faith, or maybe something like, uh, well, if you had more faith, if you were a better Christian, if you trusted Jesus more, then you wouldn't have these questions. And we're sorry if that has been your experience, and we really hope here at Hiawatha that is not the case. Obviously, we're not a perfect church uh, by no means, but we really hope to make this a place where people can ask questions, big questions that they're struggling with, wrestling through uh, as they're being authentic and, and real with themselves as they read the Bible and go through life and interact with other Christians. And uh, as a church this summer, we've been in a series called Big Questions, and so uh, in the spring, we asked our church, uh, what big questions are you wrestling with? What questions do you have about the faith, about specific passages in the Bible, about what it means to be a Christian, about Jesus? All these different things could be, could be a lot, and uh, you guys gave us some really great questions. We've been preaching through those questions throughout uh, this summer, and we are about to wrap up. We have one more week of this. Uh, next week and then Labor Day, we'll be starting our new sermon series on the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, so as we're ending this series, first of all, we want to thank you. Uh, thank you for giving us these questions, for uh, opening up y- yourself and your uh, struggles and, and your questions that uh, were very personal to many of you. And thank you for sharing those. We've really appreciated it. It's been great uh, content for this sermon series this summer. Um, if you missed any of those or you just want to know what other questions were preached on, uh, all of these are up on our website, and you can check them out, hiawathachurch.com, and uh, listen to any of those that maybe uh, resonate with you or you're interested in. And then finally, keep the questions coming, whether it's to your community group leader or other friends here at Hiawatha or whether to uh, the elders. We'd, we'd love to be answering questions that you have. And so um, if we didn't get to your big question that you actually sent us, hopefully we'll, uh, or we're planning to email you or talk to you in person to answer that. But um, so as we did the series this summer as pastors and elders, uh, we were able to pick which question that we wanted to preach on when, when it was our turn. Um, and so some of us had wrestled with similar questions and had uh, done a lot of study and a lot of prayer. And um, so we were very passionate about the answer or, or felt very prepared to answer such a question. And other questions we received, uh, we were not as, or some of us, I guess, I was not as excited about. And this one in particular that we're actually going to preach on today was one that I thought was really important, but I for sure did not want to preach it. Um, but throughout this summer, the Holy Spirit prompted me again and again and again that uh, this was a sermon that I needed, I needed to preach. And so uh, this, this question that we're going to begin to unpack today uh, has to do generally with how should Christians view and how should Christians go through seasons of uh, mental illness. So we'll unpack that in, in just a little second. A really great question, um, but I, I knew very little about the topic, especially like professionally or, or, or medically. Um, I personally have not gone through, you know, clinical depression or, or other types of me- mental illness, although I have many uh, loved ones that I know that have, and so I was just uh, mostly intimidated by this question. Um, but like I said, over the summer, the Spirit again and again prompted me that this is uh, a sermon that I need to preach and that uh, is very important for our church and our culture in general. 
So I spent lots and lots of time in prayer and in research and talking to many of you who have gone through uh, different seasons of uh, mental illness and, and what's been helpful for you, what hasn't been, and, uh, and I'll be sharing some of that today as well. And like I said, personally, I've never uh, struggled with uh, clinical depression or anxiety or other types of mental illness. And to be very clear, uh, I'm, not a mental Ill- or I'm not an expert in mental illness, nor am I a medical professional. So questions about diagnosis and about diets and therapy and counseling and medication, I'm, I'm not going to speak to those today. Those are great questions for, uh, for your doctor and for other medical professionals. But the, the question we were asked today specifically talks about Christians. How should Christians go through seasons of, of grief and anxiety and depression and other types of mental illness? So, so that's what we're going to speak on today. And one of the reasons I felt so compelled to preach on this, besides the Holy Spirit just uh, not letting me not do it, was just how, how prevalent mental illness is uh, in our culture now today. And I don't know if it was just uh, diagnosed less in, in our history or if more is happening now, I'm not quite sure, but uh, statistics vary. But most of them say about one in four either uh, will or are or will struggle uh, with uh, some type of mel- mental illness within their lifetime. Other statistics even say as much as in, in a given year, one out of four people could be diagnosed with some type of mental illness. So it's very, very uh, prevalent Lots of people are struggling with it, many of us here in this room. So what this does mean is that even if you are someone who, is, who doesn't struggle with uh, depression or anxiety or any other type of uh, mental illness, uh, many of your brothers and sisters in your church are, as well as probably a number of, of your loved ones, or you maybe will experience it later on um, in life. And so it's uh, very important, I think, for us to address the question, a really great question. One of the most crippling uh, elements of depression specifically, and, and also other mental illnesses, is the isolating sense that the person suffering from it has. That they're the only person, that no one else is like this, that no one can understand what they're really going through, and that they're alone. And there's also a, a social stigma, especially, or maybe especially within uh, Christianity or within the church, that if you have depression or anxiety, that you're actually not a really good Christian or maybe you don't have enough faith, or that it's, it's really just a sign of God being mad with you. Both of these statements are, are very untrue, and hopefully by the, by the end of the sermon we'll uh, all, all believe that, but those are two big things that, that people with uh, depression and anxiety especially can struggle with. So we're going to look at the Bible, what does the Bible say about this, and, and talk about some practical things as well. So today's sermon it's for all of us. Whether you're struggling with mental illness, whether you have in the past, whether you have a loved one or a friend that is right now, or whether you don't and you just want to better, or it is for all of us, so we can better take care of and love and understand our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ as well. So this morning, a big question essentially is asking uh, kind of broadly, how should Christians view and deal with mental illness? And then maybe even more specific, how can Christians have, express, and work through feelings or seasons of anxiety, grief, and depression in a way that honors God? And so, especially since the question is talking about uh, depression and, and anxiety, uh, we're going to hit on those often, but we could, uh, we'll also talk about mental illness in general as well. 
And as always, with, with many of these questions we've had in this series, there's so much more that we could say. It's really hard to do a topical sermon and to squish all the answers into uh, just 45 minutes or something. And so um, there's a lot more that we could say, but today we're going to hopefully answer this question and then look at what the Bible says a little more broadly on this theme. So before we start, uh, I've been saying this word mental illness a lot. And it's actually kind of hard to define. You look at different organizations and groups, and they have different definitions for this. But uh, essentially, when I'm talking about mental illness, this, this is what I mean. The National Alliance on Mental Illness uh, describes or defines mental illness, mental illness as a condition that impacts a person's thinking, feeling, or mood and may affect his or her ability to relate to others and function on a daily basis. Each person will have different experiences, even people with the same diagnosis. So today when I say mental illness, we're talking about uh, many things all the way from uh, anxiety to schizophrenia to bipolar disorder to depression to PTSD. And we're going to, like I said, specifically be focusing on uh, anxiety and, and, and depression since that was brought up in our question. So in, in our culture, when we deal with mental illness, there's, there's often two extremes. There's one extreme over here, maybe in the church or maybe in Christianity, that says we're, or everything is spiritual or we're, we're just spiritual. And so when, when there is a problem with depression or anxiety or another mental illness, the answer is, well, it's, it's a result of sin or you're, you don't have enough faith or you're not trusting God enough or you're a bad Christian or God is mad at you. And so obviously you can see lots of unhealthy things that can come from that, this hyper-spiritualized that, that we are only, or that the problem is only a spiritual one. And then the other unhealthy extreme, unbiblical extreme, is that it's only a physical problem. It's only a chemical imbalance, and that the only treatment or the only way someone can have seasons of healing or, or full healing only comes through therapy and, and diet and medication and counseling and things like that. Whereas what the Bible talks about, it's, it's for sure not the very middle, but it's much more towards the middle. There for sure is a spectrum there as well, but the, the, there's two very unhealthy ends to that spectrum. The Bible tells us that we're both physical and spiritual, that problems are both physical and spiritual, and that what we, what we do need is, is a combination probably of both. So the Bible teaches that we're both physical and spiritual, and it also teaches us that we live in a broken world. And so we unpack this or that, that question a few weeks ago about why there's suffering in this world or how we go through or why there's evil in, in this world and how we go through afflictions and trials and pain. And so if you want to listen to that, you can. But so to essentially answer this question, why, why is there mental illness in the world? Why do people struggle with, with such great depression or anxiety or fear? Kind of three things, and we, we talked about this a little bit in some earlier sermons, but uh, three reasons that there actually, or why there is mental illness in the world. The first one is because of the fall, because of humanity's rebellion against God, we went from paradise to brokenness. And so our bodies are broken. So things like cancer and diabetes and our bodies just aching. I mean, if you've been alive for more than a few decades, you already realize that our bodies are just already starting to decay. We have problems with our eyesight and problems with our health and, and lots of things. And, and not only are our bodies uh, with things like cancer or chronic pain or disease, we also, our bodies are broken in that we have chemical imbalances and that we have uh, anxiety that, that overruns our life and we have clinical depression. 
We also live in a broken world, a, a sinful world that is, is constantly barraging us with all these different uh, statements and lies and, and ide- ideals that is at odds with the kingdom of God, that is at odds with truth. And so we hear again and again and again these lies and deception calling us to be discontent with wherever you're at. You should be discontent and you should want something more, either a better spouse, a better place, a better job, more money, more comfort, things like that, are telling us that we should feel imperfect. We should hate ourselves. We should feel undesirable because you need their product. You need to do what they're doing to make you look better, act better, be more loved, more accepted. Or another great lie that we hear again and again is that independence is the greatest goal out there. Complete freedom and independence, not having to trust or rely on anyone, complete freedom, that that is actually the greatest goal out there, the greatest treasure, when in fact it actually is a prison. And then thirdly, we also have an enemy. The Bible calls him, names him the father of lies, whose main tactic against us is deception and lies and accusation. So we live in a broken world, and we have all three of these things working against us, whether you actually have a, a, a clinical uh, diagnosis of a mental illness or whether that you just struggle with depression and despair and anxiety and fear and worry. These are some, uh, some of the main reasons why that is the case. But there is hope. In Porter Brooks' uh, class, Chris mentioned Porter Brook earlier, there's a class called Pastoral Care where they talk about uh, depression. They write, in God's words, sorry, in God's word, depressed Christians, or you could fill in any other mental illness there, will find that they are not the first or the only children of God to suffer. Instead, they will discover the empathy of fellow sufferers, the unmasking of many of the causes of suffering, and examples of how to respond in the midst of suffering. The Bible uniquely knows what it is to be human and uniquely explains the place of pain within the human experience. God's word must, therefore, be allowed to speak to speak to help those affected by depression. So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to spend some time in a passage today written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing back to a church that he helped plant, and he's going to be sharing about this incredible suffering that he went through, suffering that was both physical as well as mental and emotional. So he's writing back to this church uh, in uh, the city of Corinth, and so this we're going to be reading from uh, 2 Corinthians verses uh, 3 through 11. It'll be up there on the screen. It's also in your uh, handout as well. Starting in verse 3. So Paul's writing back to this church. He's, he's uh, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Verse 8, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and that you've given it to us, that you don't leave us uh, in the dark. You help answer our questions. Pray you would help us unpack this passage. Speak to us. Comfort us this morning. In your name, amen. All right, so Paul starts off by defining God. So he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, he gives God some names. He helps this church understand who God is by, by defining him, by giving him names. He calls God the Father, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So he's a merciful God. So this guy has gone, gone through lots of suffering, and he's saying even amidst suffering, God is still merciful. And he is the one who brings comfort. He's the God of all comfort. Not just comfort, but the God of all comfort. And God does that through himself, through his spirit, through his word, and also through his people. We're going to unpack that a little bit later today. I have a friend who uh, going through lots of suffering right now, not a Christian, and he shares that he loves Hiawatha. He loves the church, but he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't love God. And, and what, what's going on with him is he's not understanding that what he's actually feeling when, he's, uh, when he says he loves Hiawatha, when he loves the people here, what, what he doesn't realize is that that's actually God working through us. So he's not making this connection that God comforts his people and comforts other people through his church, through his people. So when we are comforted, it comes from God. He's the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us in all of our affliction, Paul says. So all of our hardships, not just the ones that we see in the end bring him glory, or at the end we see that we're doing really great and that he used that for, for us to grow or mature or build our character. But in all of our afflictions, he comforts us, both mental afflictions and physical afflictions, which Paul experienced both of those in great, great ways. He continues, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So this, there's a big so that statement right in the middle there. So God comforts us so that we can extend that comfort to others. The comfort that we receive in our affliction, in our depression, in our worry and anxiety and suffering and pain, he comforts us there so that we can extend that to others. So it's not just an end in itself. So if you've ever been comforted by God or his spirit or his people, then he's calling you to pass that comfort on, to spread that comfort to others who are also hurting, who are also going through affliction. So God comforts us, and that comfort is meant to, to move through us, to embody the gospel, and then to go out to others. So when we are actually comforting others, it's actually God who's really working through us, which we talk about here often how in the New Testament, the church is often described as the body of Christ. And so if the church is comforting people who are hurting and suffering, it's the body of Christ. It's Christ that's actually doing these things. Jesus cares for the hurting, suffering, and afflicted, and he does so through his spirit, but also through his body, also through other people. And so if we receive and we give comfort to the hurting, suffering, and afflicted, then we need community. Paul is, is saying that we need each other. We need the church. We need other Christians 
within our life. We can't comfort others if we don't have any others in our life. We can't receive comfort from other believers if we are all by ourselves. So again, the Bible speaks about the church being called the body of Christ. And then in other places like Romans 12, uh, verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And the reason that it says that, or the, the reason that we can do that, is because we comfort each other, because we see ourselves as one body. We see ourselves as a community, as a spiritual family that we've been saved into. So through the gospel, we went from being a rebel, a traitor, sinful, running away from God, all by ourselves. And when we're saved, we're not only saved from our sins, but we're also saved into something. We're saved into a church, into a spiritual family that now gives us new identity. It gives us new meaning. It gives us a new home. So through the gospel, we're saved into a spiritual family that's centered on the gospel. So you are not alone. So again, one of the big lies that people struggling with mental illness, or, or maybe uh, you're going to do that sometime later in your life, a, a big lie or a big fear that you're going to have is that you're alone, that no one can understand you, or that no one really cares, or that no one wants to be around you, or no one can help you carry this burden, or weep with you, like Romans 12 says. But the gospel says that you are saved into a spiritual family, that you're no longer alone, having to fight for yourself, having no one to look out for you, but now you're a part of a spiritual family. So it's really important for us, especially when we're struggling with any type of depression or anxiety, to be known, to not just hide, and I know it, it feels like we're all alone, but we need to be known by other people so that we can share that, so that people can comfort us when we need that. And so one of, one of the greatest ways that we have as a structure here at Hiawatha for this is community groups. And so uh, we, Emily announced that earlier today. So community groups are, are launching up again this fall, and if you're not in one, we encourage you to get, get into one it just doesn't work for this season of life. We still strongly encourage you to find some deep friendship, deep Christian friendship here at Hiawatha so that you can receive a lot of these things that we're sharing about. But two big pillars of community groups are gospel friendships and spiritual growth. So gospel friendships, we're friends not just because we like each other, not just because we get good things from each other, because you're funny and you're enjoyable and I, I like hanging out with you, but we, we uh, center our friendships around the gospel. Because you are my brother or sister in Christ. And I love you and you're my friend unconditionally. And I'm going to stick through hard times with you because we are spiritual family. And then another big pillar of community groups is spiritual growth. We, we accept people where they are. Okay? If people are, are struggling and hurting and wrestling with, with sin or, or depression or anxiety or mental illness, we, we accept them where they are. We love them. But then we also call them to something more. We want spiritual growth. We, we want what's best for them. We, we know that uh, believing lies or, or, or staying in, in hurt and pain, uh, we want them to, to, to grow out of that. We want them to find healing and comfort. And so no church is perfect. No community group is perfect. Yet the church and community, the spiritual family, is a great gift. One of the greatest gifts Jesus gives his people. So gospel friendships are given to us to defeat the loneliness and isolation of depression and to help erase the fears and worries that anxiety can bring. All right, back to our passage. Uh, verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 
So Paul presupposes here that Christians are going to go through suffering. Just as Christ went through suffering, his followers also are going to experience all types of suffering and affliction in this world. But also, just like we experience suffering with Christ, we'll also receive comfort through him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his uh, classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Or Jesus said it even better in uh, Luke 9. He says, and he said to them all, Jesus speaking to people, he says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, wants to be my follower, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. So essentially, so the cross is a, a form of capital punishment. So if someone wants to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, every day you're going to have to deny yourself and essentially die to yourself and follow Jesus. So being united with Jesus, we don't just share in his afflictions and sufferings, although we do, and he tells us that his, his disciples will go through those things, but we also share in Jesus' comfort that he brings. The Gospel Transformation Bible unpacks this idea. They say, our, our afflictions can serve as a window to the reality and benefit of our union with Christ. If we experience affliction as Christ did, we can also expect to be comforted as Christ was. If we undergo suffering, we can anticipate consolation. Even if we experience deadly peril, our hope has been set on a God who delivers us from death. Let's keep going. Verse 6. If we are afflicted, Paul is saying, we speaking of himself and a couple other leaders, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. So Paul had some opponents that were arguing that, Paul, you're not really an apostle. You're not really, you don't really have an authority. You're not really a pastor because you're going through all these trials and sufferings and afflictions. But Paul is actually arguing the exact opposite. He's arguing that God is actually using his afflictions and his sufferings, and his problems, and his trials, in order to strengthen the believers in this church, uh, especially here. So despite our affliction, despite our suffering, our depression, our anxiety, our fear, our worry, our grief, our hope is unshaken. So if at the center of the Christian faith, our God takes the worst suffering and brings about the greatest comfort of it. Think about that. The greatest comfort us as Christians have is the cross. We sing about the cross, we wear the cross on our necklaces, or we tattoo it on our body. We read about it, we talk about it again and again and again. And the cross is really the the greatest act of suffering and and affliction that anyone has ever experienced. But it, it, it is our greatest comfort. It's our hope. So if God can take the worst suffering and affliction that's ever happened and turn that into the greatest comfort ever, how much more can he bring us comfort through our own afflictions, through our own depression, anxiety, fear, and suffering? Again, here, uh, here that I'm not saying, too, that God's guaranteeing healing. We're saying comfort a lot, and that's what Paul's saying, too. There, there might be long seasons of, uh, of, of, of affliction, of depression, of anxiety, where you actually don't receive healing, but God still comforts you through those. But we have seen a lot of healing through the gospel, through Christian community, for sure. But there are also seasons where God will just comfort and uh, um, 
the suffering will still be there. We'll unpack that a, a little more in, in just a bit. So today, if you feel hopeless, if you feel like what Paul has been describing is your situation, maybe you even know it's not true, but that's still what you're feeling, or that is your reality, know that there is hope. The Bible says that there is hope. Paul is arguing as a guy who has suffered tremendously that there is hope. And know that you're a part, if you're a Christian, you're a part of a Christian community, a spiritual family that accepts you, loves you, serves you, will laugh with you, and point you to the gospel in Jesus again and again and again. Verse 8, Paul continues, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So look what Paul is doing. Like This is the very beginning of his letter to this church. And he doesn't just uh, wait till the middle of the letter to tell them about all the affliction and suffering that they have gone through. He doesn't uh, kind of like a Minnesotan would maybe passive-aggressively share some kind of vague thing about how tough it is. But he starts off by being very vulnerable, by being very honest and open and saying, we do not want you to be unaware. We want you to know. We're writing at the very beginning of our letter because we want you to know all the trials and affliction that we are going through. Paul sees more than his pride, more than looking great as a leader, as a pastor, as a Christian. More than that, he values authenticity and, re and uh, being open and honest and being real. And he knows that it's important that his spiritual family, his church, knows what he's going through. So he's demonstrating, as a good leader does, he's demonstrating and modeling great authenticity, great openness and honesty and vulnerability. He shares his deep, painful struggles, despite the fact that he has people fighting against him, saying that because he's saying this, he's not really a leader. He doesn't really have authority. He's not really an apostle. And he also does this despite knowing that some people are going to look down on him or think that he's not really that great of a leader anymore or we can't trust him as much because he's, he's sharing, hey, I'm, I've struggled really, really much. I have deep affliction, deep uh, pain, discouragement. Here at Hiawatha, we have, uh, I think, 12 or 13 values. You can check them out on our website. Big things like the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Bible and Christian community and the sacraments. And we also have things like authenticity. So one of, I think it's maybe like our 11th goal or something. So it is not as important as the Trinity and as the gospel, but still very important. We highly value it here at Hiawatha. And this, this is what we say about authenticity. True community and true spiritual growth can only exist in an environment where people can be real with God and with one another. We get that from Ephesians 4, 25. We value sharing our struggles, praying with each other, and where appropriate, confessing our sins to one another. So Ephesians 4, 25, kind of reference it to, to it there in that uh, authenticity statement. We read, uh, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So neighbor here, in the context of church. So he's saying, stop, stop, or put away all falsehood. Stop lying to each other. Speak the truth because we're all members of each other. We're all members of the same church, members of the same body. James 5, 16, writing to the church, is, is, is talking to Christians and encouraging them to be authentic, to be real with each other, even when it hurts. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
So a command to the church is confess your sins to each other. Be authentic with each other. Tell each other when you're struggling, when you're believing lies, when you're broken, when you're hurting, when you're sinning, because our new identity is in the gospel. It's not in being a good person. It's not in being a great friend and trying to look good, and so you have to hide who you are, what you're thinking, what you're struggling with, because they might not like you. They might reject you. You might no longer be a part of that community group or that spiritual family or, or that church, but the gospel says something different. The gospel allows us to be real, to be authentic, to be honest with each other. Tim Keller in his great quote on this says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared imagine, but at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So through the gospel, we're now loved and accepted, both by our God as well as his, his church, his people, his spiritual family here. So through the gospel, we're now loved and accepted despite what we do, despite how great we are, how attractive we are, how nice we are, how important we are. We no longer get our identity from being strong, from being secure, or from being successful, and we are now loved and wanted despite ourselves, despite our flaws, despite our sin, despite our brokenness. We're saved into a spiritual family, so we don't have to worry about having a place to belong or having fear about not being accepted. Verse 8 continues, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So Paul, in very descriptive language, speaks about the suffering and affliction that they are going through. Deep, deep affliction, both mental and physical. We see later on in 2 Corinthians as well as uh, in other places, we see that it's both physical and uh, mental. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We were overwhelmed. It, it, it felt like so much that we had received the sentence of death. A little bit later on in the same book, 2 Corinthians 4, or 2, 4, he uh, adds to that. He describes this even more. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. So this guy is broken. So maybe you felt the same depression, the same anxiety, the same worry and fear. Maybe this is a daily experience for you or has been in the past. You're burdened beyond your strength, beyond anything you can handle. Life seems like it's consuming you with despair. You can't get out of bed in the morning or that the fears and worries of life consume you so much that it feels like a death sentence. Know that you're not alone. Know that you're not alone. Paul felt this. We saw or we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians. But not only Paul, but also many throughout the Bible. It's full of prophets, priests, kings in the Old Testament, as well as uh, apostles, pastors, and church members in the New Testament, struggling with these same things. Read the book of Psalms, read the book of Job, read the book of Lamentations. Huge chunks of scripture that are people describing their suffering, describing their anguish and their sorrow and their lament. And not only have Christians had these same struggles, which is very or can be very encouraging to us, for us to feel like we're not the only person that's ever felt these things or the only Christian, but not, not only that, but even more importantly, our God can empathize with us. 
Think about that. What other religion says that our God can empathize with us? That our God has been in the same struggles, felt the same pain, the same anguish that we have? What other religion can say that? Jesus felt severe, or sorry, Jesus felt the most severely in the Garden of Gethsemane during his betrayal and then through his trial and torture and crucifixion. Luke 22, uh, 22, 44 says, speaking of Jesus, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And in Matthew's account, uh, Jesus says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And in Hebrews, it describes Jesus. It says, in Christ, in Jesus, he's a great high priest, but not one who can't sympathize with us, but rather one who can sympathize, who's, who became fully human and can sympathize with all of our weaknesses and our needs and our suffering and our affliction. And Jesus is the perfect example for us of true humanity, godly, spirit-led humanity. He was tempted, he was weak, he was discouraged, he was sorrowful, he was broken, he was burdened, he was suffered, or he suffered greatly, and he was overwhelmed, and he weeps, yet without sin. Verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that, so that speaking of his uh, affliction, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. So Paul's arguing to these people that uh, his suffering as well as the suffering that they're going to go through, affliction that they're going to go through, there is a point. God uses that to help us rely on him, to rely on our God who's a deliverer, who's a comforter, who's merciful, and who raises the dead. Paul later on in this letter speaks of, of an affliction that he has that he calls uh, a, a thorn in his flesh. And some people think it's me uh, a mental thing. Some people think it was physical. We don't really know. He doesn't really describe it. But there's a, when he's talking about it, he says, I pleaded with God. I pleaded with him three times. God, remove this thorn in my flesh. Remove this great uh, suffering, this great affliction that I have. And this is God's response to Paul. But God said to me, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul responds, Therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So if our churches, if Christianity was filled with people that didn't have any problems, didn't have any struggles or sufferings or trials or afflictions, if they were just perfect people, what would that say to the world? Or even say to us who are in it? It would say that you have to be perfect or you have to be great in order to earn salvation or to be a part of God or to be accepted by God. But that's not the case. The church is filled of suffering people, of imperfect people, people who are messed up and broken and who are uh, just have lots of issues, right? We're not perfect. And that shows us, it reminds us, and it shows the world that it's not about us. It's not about us not having doubts or fears or anxiety or discouragement, but it's about God. Abigail Van Buren, in her famous quote you probably heard, says, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So the church is not a place where saints, great, perfect people, 
comment and look at each other and say, wow, you're great, you're beautiful, you're really holy, you're really righteous, you do great deeds, but rather the church is a hospital for sinners, people who are broken that come and gather together and get comfort through each other from God. Verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And so as Christians, we set our hope not in medication, not in counseling, not in friends, not in circumstances, not in diet, not in exercise, not in the next stage of life where things get better or easier. But we put our ultimate hope in him. Our world will lie to us, our hearts will deceive us, and our enemy will tempt and accuse us. But we put our hope in the one who promises that he will comfort us. We hope in the one who empowers us with his spirit to fight the lies that drive us to sinful anxiety and depression. We hope in the one who saves us from our sins and promises an eternity full of healing, fulfillment, security, comfort, and joy. Even if we never receive full healing in this life from our mental illness, he promises, promises us that for eternity, he will heal us. Like I said, in prep for this sermon, I talked to a bunch of you who this is your story, this is your struggle, this is uh, your question. And uh, a number of you had really great responses. One of these I, I wanted to share. This lady, uh, we're gonna, she's going to re- remain anonymous, but um, I wanted to share with you her thoughts and her experience on how she found Jesus as her greatest treasure amidst clinical depression, amidst suffering, great suffering and affliction, and how she even got to a point where she was thankful for it because it, it drove her to put her hope and reliance completely in Jesus and to rely fully on her Savior. She writes this, speaking of her mental illness, this is meant to drive me more to Jesus He doesn't promise to heal me or to remove my burden, but he does promise to be with me, to carry the burden alongside of me, to comfort me, and to give me hope. This illness or this season of depression does not define me, Jesus does. This illness does not define me, Jesus does. So just as with any suffering, God does not promise that he will bring full healing, but he does promise that he will be there with us, and we can draw near to him experience his grace, pray for healing, which he may or may not grant, but know that he's there with us. She continues, listen to what she calls it. She says, the beautiful gift of anxiety, grief, disappointment, depression, mental illness, is that it reminds us that we are limited. When you experience life under the cloud of pain, you don't hide it. Then you learn to embrace weakness, and as a result, Begin to trust God more as you allow him to be your God. My greatest seasons of prayer have been when I couldn't get out of bed, when I couldn't get dressed or feed myself because the depression was so great, I could only lie in darkness and cry out to God over and over again. In those moments, I hungered for Jesus with desperation, but not without hope. Paul ends by saying, verse 11, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So pray for each other. Pray that God would draw near as you're going through these seasons. Pray for each other. And know that others, or pray that others will see you going through these times faithfully, 
even though it's a really horrible time, that they will worship God through those, as Paul says here in verse 11. Pray scripture. Pray through the Psalms. Pray through the book of Lamentations. Uh, things like that. If you, if you want some specific uh, uh, passages to pray, come talk to me. We can find some, some really great ones. All right. We're going to end with uh, Philippians 4, 6. It says, Do not worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. So as we leave today, kind of three things as we apply this to our life. First thing is, don't let your affliction define you. So whether that is depression, whether that is anxiety, or whether it's a different type of affliction or suffering, whether it's you don't have a job, whether it is uh, you have broken relationships in your life, or, or whatever your affliction or suffering is, don't let that define you. Culture is going to say, make that be the most important thing in your life. Make that how you define yourself. The enemy is going to whisper that in your ear and tell you to do that. But don't let that define you. Rather, get your identity from who you are in Christ. You're free in the gospel to be vulnerable, to be real, to be open, and not perfect. You're free to be not perfect in the gospel. And you're not a bad Christian just because you wrestle with doubt or depression, anxiety or discouragement or other mental illness. And if you're not a Christian today, know that you can have that identity. You can have an identity apart from your suffering, apart from your affliction, apart of apart from the suffering that you're going through or, or the abuse that you've received or that the, the failures in your life, you can have an identity apart from that. Jesus offers you a new life, a full life in him. You put your trust in what he did on the cross on your behalf. And he invites you to have a new identity within a new family, a new place where you can belong, where you can be comforted, where you can be cared for, where you can be wanted. And he offers comfort through his spirit and through his people. He offers that you can be adopted into his family. Second thing, know or remember or believe for the first time that you're not alone. Know that other people have gone through this before. Christians have gone through this before. The Bible's full of people who have struggled with all different kinds of depression, anxiety, grief, despair. Also know that there's people, many people around you that are also going through that. And even if they're not, we love you. We will love you. We will comfort you through the power that the Spirit grants us here within our church, within our community groups. Lots of the spiritual family here at Hiawatha. And then finally, thirdly, rely on Jesus. When you're broken, when you're suffering, when you're going through afflictions, just like this person shared in their story, rely on Jesus and make him your greatest treasure. You're designed to, to have Jesus as your greatest treasure, your greatest fulfillment. So make him your, your greatest treasure, your goal, rather than your happiness, rather than a perfect life, rather than that affliction to completely go away. Do this through deep, honest prayer, through confession, through talking with other Christians. Do this through spending time in Scripture and reading truth or seeing how Paul and other Christians have gone through similar seasons. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you that you do not leave us in our affliction, in our suffering. God, but that you, you bring us hope, eternal hope and even hope right now. A spiritual family that will love us a spirit that will comfort us. 
So God, give us what we need individually and as a church to love each other in times of, of suffering and, and depression and anxiety. Pray this in your healing, in your saving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.